Episode 2, Developing a Culture for Change. The importance of deep conversations and changing behaviours, not structures. Welcome to Episode 2 in our series, How to Build an Integrated Health and Care System. In it, we're exploring a subject which many people in the NHS and indeed across the world are turning their minds to addressing. In each episode in the series, we will examine a particular feature of integrated systems and how we go about practically applying some of the lessons from successful leaders around the world. I'm Dr David Hamilton, your host and guide on this journey. I've spent some 30 years working in the NHS in various guises as a consultant physician, director, chief executive, and I'm acutely aware of how difficult it is to promote true integration and collaboration among health and care partners. In this episode, we will be discussing the importance of culture and behaviour change. I will be talking again to a range of experts, chief executives, system leaders and clinicians, gaining their insights in order to help leaders to successfully engender this philosophy in your local system. Let me start by saying that I sense an increasing desire to encourage people within the health and care sector to work more effectively together, collaborate rather than compete, and do what is best for their system and their population rather than their individual organisation. However, what is also clear is that the answer to enacting this philosophy has so far been to undertake a series of structural reorganisations which are increasingly viewed as simply rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. It's not that structures and how organisations relate to each other formally is not important. Indeed, it's clear that some ways of organising health and care systems will genuinely help the integration of their component parts. I would contrast the NHS reforms of 2013, which created a myriad of new entities put together in an almost incomprehensible matrix with the unified health boards in New Zealand and, to some extent, Wales and Scotland. The former was still made to work very effectively in some parts of England and the latter is just about to be dismantled in New Zealand in favour of greater centralisation. So why is the abolition of existing structures and creating new organisations so common? particularly here in the NHS, and presumably such an inviting option when the aim is really to change culture. First, there is no doubt that it creates the very clear signal that you are actively doing something and therefore serious about your stated intentions. People can see how new organisations emerge with visions, mission statements, logos, branding and all that goes with newness. It's worth pointing out that very rarely, if ever, is there a wholesale change in personnel to accompany these changes. Secondly, the upheaval of consigning one set of organisations to the dustbin of NHS history and creation of its successes takes time. While this seems like a negative consequence, it is, in fact, helpful in that it allows people to point to the developing new architecture and argue that they are indeed addressing the issue at hand. But it's too early to see an impact as the new structures aren't even in place yet. It takes a long time to disestablish statutory bodies and stand up replacements. 
Finally, changing how you organise yourselves also potentially avoids having rather more difficult and seemingly time-consuming conversations about how people in your system are behaving, why those behaviours might not be the most constructive and how those people might want to change their approach. So let's talk again to Carolyn Gullery and David Metz, formerly of Canterbury District Health Board, about what motivated them to deliberately not restructure their way out of a sticky situation in Canterbury, New Zealand, and instead describe what their approach was. Let's start with David Metz. One of the things is they often you know, kind of confuse activity with change. So with structural changes, people are frantically you know, beavering around, working out where they sit within a structure and all of those sort of things. And the one thing that uh, gets lost is how's this making a difference to the business of caring? How's it making a difference to Agnes? How is it making a difference to the um, citizen or the patient that that we're dealing with? So one of the worst things you can do in complex systems is continually restructure them. The core bit of enabling a complex system to start moving together is actually the engagement around a common sense of purpose, the sense of why we're in this together. And if you haven't got that as an anchor point, it becomes easy to do all of the other other bits like structural change that cause lots of harm. The other bit is change happens at the speed of trust. And what often happens with the focus on structural reorganisations is that breaks the elements of trust, the relationships that have existed, and invariably it ends up creating a stalled focus on what needs to happen. So that important element of saying, this is the system, these are the people that are part of it, how do we engage the people in creating that shared sense of purpose, as opposed to looking at them and saying, well, actually, the system's all broken. Let's just reorganise it again and somehow it will magically be different. Because generally with that, you end up with the same people that have just been shifted into different parts um, of of a system that have still got the same um, gaps and competencies or the same brilliance that hasn't been recognised. And the core part is, generally speaking, people are not the problem. It's how we've described or how we've engaged them in the problem. Now, one of the things that as a Canterbury health system, we became very, very good at. One is a clear sense of purpose and direction. And that's often what health systems are really, really bad at doing, is actually describing that. And we did that with the engagement processes, the kind of working through on that. We became better at identifying problems as opposed to symptoms because we spend a lot of time reacting to symptoms or the noisy advocacy groups or the political pressure that actually distracted us from saying, so what is the underlying problem that we're trying to solve? And then the other bit is that we became experts at is not naming a solution. And it sounds a bit counterintuitive because Often, a lot of people in leadership roles, they generally look at something and say, okay, here's the solution. And the problem with that that we found is no matter how brilliant the solution was, if people hadn't been involved in creating that solution, they invariably would, not consciously, but it would not work. And so there are a number of occasions that I have woken up in the middle of the night with the most brilliant solutions 
just, you know, kind of, yep, this is really simple to solve. And then puzzled a few weeks later in terms of why others couldn't quite see the um, you know, the uh, brilliance. And the, the one thing that became very obvious with that is that if you give the problem to these bright, intelligent people that generally work in health, who are natural problem solvers, in the context of a future direction, they will generally come up with a solution that is a thousand times better than the single solution or the solution that has been developed by a small group. And one of the core elements of that is was giving away the sense of, you know, sometimes uh, giving away a bit of power, focusing more on enabling. Didn't change the fact that we always had a clear picture of what we thought we needed to do, but we just didn't name it. With that, as I say, every time we went through that process, we ended up in a space that was so much better than we could have ever imagined. And we ended up being able to do things that we could have only ever dreamed about because those doctors or those nurses or those allied health or middle management would have screwed it up. With the engagement, those same people made it work because they were part of, they had been involved in it. And that core element of starting to shift accountability subtly back to those delivering services and also to the community was a really, really important bit. And I think we confuse accountabilities in so many different ways. We think actually chief executive needs accountability or the chief medical officer or the chief nurse or the chief financial officer. And actually that's the wrong place for the accountabilities to be sitting. Carolyn now takes up the story, talking about how to change the focus of the conversations and become a little more person-centred. Well, there's a number of things that actually lead to putting uh, the patient at the centre. And I've mentioned time already, and that was that concept of a unifying metric. But my sense is that health systems struggle because there are so many pieces to it. And you don't have a single organisational structure. You have many organisations. You have private sector, you have not-for-profit, you have public sector, all trying to work together. And then what we've done over the last 20 or 30 years in various ways in various health systems around the world is brought in contracts and performance metrics and targets and a whole range of things that actually consume people's attention and time. And then we bring in budgets. Now, one of the things that we did to build a system on trust is we actually said there's only one budget. There is only one bottom line. It's the district health board's bottom line. So we all need to do the right thing for the patient. And if we don't waste the time, then we'll assume it's going to be the best outcome for the district health board. Because you can't manage a bottom line by focusing on it. You have to manage a bottom line by getting everything working right across the system. And when we started to talk to people about, no, we're not going to measure you on your budget. We are going to measure you on what you've done for the patients. And please don't have an argument about who's paying for the CT scan. Because if the patient needs the CT scan, then we should be getting the CT scan done. And it doesn't matter if it comes out of general medicine's budget or the emergency department's budget, because it actually comes out of Canterbury's budget. Now, it was rhetoric. It wasn't real. There are lots of budgets in the Canterbury system, but it's about how you choose to behave. And so what we did is we we replaced measuring people on their financial performance with measuring people 
on their performance around how they delivered patient care. And we use the data to do that. Carolyn, again, that was a really powerful description. I want to come back to data in a, a little while, but your description there of trusting frontline clinicians is again rhetoric that I hear, but it's very rare that you see in reality behaviours, dare I say it from executive teams and people who are running systems, where they really do put their trust in clinicians and allow them to do the right thing and, as you've described it previously, taking the money off the table. So how did clinicians take to all of that and how did you manage that as a, as a board because it sounds like quite a, a again a brave and unusual thing to do it was a journey I have to say that one of the things about the journey of if you're trying to transform a system there's a there's a couple of things that I think are really important first of all is you can't leap a chasm one step at a time so if I'm looking across a number of the other systems I work with there are far too many projects there are little tests of change there are small pieces if you're really going to transform a system, you've got to assume you're going to scale. So any of our new programs and processes that we rolled out, we just went to scale. We assumed it, we designed it for scale. Now, what we did is we went with the willing. So we started with the people who were willing to try and do things a different way. We changed all of the, as I said, we changed our whole view about how you did contracting. We changed the way the budgets worked so they got out of our way. There was still very clear financial accountability, but the budgets were not a barrier. We used funding as an enabler, not a barrier. So we started with the people who were willing to work with us. It took probably maybe 12 to 18 months for the people who were the cynics to actually realise that the people who were working with us were getting to the chance to solve problems that had been around as they always are in health systems for a very long time. And so then we started having people who had previously not been interested in being engaged actually putting their hand up and saying, well, when is it our turn? When do we get to redesign our bit of the system? And so when you set out to build a system based on trust, you've got to stick to it. Because most of us have grown up in health systems where we've got used to things not working that way. There is a level of cynicism. There's a level of people enthusiastically help, hoping that they can make a difference. I mean, most people come to work each day to do a good job. If they're not doing a good job, it's because we've got the system wrong. And if you come at it from that premise that pretty much everyone you're dealing with wants to make a difference, they want to help patients, they want to see the things work well, but they have been blocked or not supported or not enabled, but you have to follow through on what you do, you have to hold true to that principle, which it's about the patient. Even when that decision might be a bit uncomfortable in the context of a health system, you still have to hold true to that. And every time you hold true to that, you just reinforce the behaviour and increase the trust. In South Tyneside, where I was chief executive for seven years, we were fortunate to meet leaders in the Canterbury system very early on in our journey towards greater integration, which helped us enormously. We stole many ideas from Canterbury, including one for enabling deep conversations to happen. In 2017, we established our very own Alliance leadership team. We hired a coach to guide us and we invited people from within our system who were not necessarily in positions of hierarchical power, but whose opinions mattered. 
we probably all know individuals whose voice will be listened to and who have real influence, regardless of their position in their organisation. So we had a group of directors, managers, clinicians from statutory, third sector organisations, all in a room. We deliberately had no agenda, took no minutes, had no papers, notes or even a table. We wanted to talk about behaviours. At first, it was extremely uncomfortable, asking quite senior people to talk about how it felt rather than how the tasks were going. However, we were determined to be very clear what we were expecting of everyone if we were serious about being all in it together and doing the right thing for the population and our system rather than our organisation. Only by doing that were we able to notice when we were seeing these behaviours and when we were not. But the art of noticing took time to develop. Be very clear. Individuals are shaped by their environments. They inhabit them for a long time in their working lives. As we heard in the first episode, we have constructed health and care systems which have encouraged competition, not collaboration, espoused the virtues of a free market, and therefore have not been the fertile ground for developing the behaviours which we are now asking of our staff. I'm convinced that navigating these deep, often difficult conversations laid a foundation between team members, because we soon started to behave like a team, that was crucial in changing the very culture within South Tyneside as a place. Dr Dave Julian, GP Clinical Director and Chief Executive First Contact Clinical, a third sector organisation specialising in behaviour change, was one of a number of key influencers in our system who were invited to join the ALT. I spoke to him about what it was like when we first embarked on this approach. I, I distinctly remember my, my, my first time in the meeting, actually, and I guess the memory that jumps out at me most was the level of discomfort that people were facing initially. And I saw that as a very positive thing. So the meeting was in an in a, in a open space, in a big room. There was there's none of the artefacts that we usually had around meetings that kind of gave people that sense of comfort and status. So there were no papers, there was no agenda, there was no table. And it literally was a, a ring of, of chairs in a room. And we were invited to sit in, in this room and, and talk to, to each other. I remember that was the first time that I'd met a number of people in the room, despite having worked in South Tyneside system for uh, about 15 years. It was the first time that I'd met the Director of Adult Services from the the local authority. Um, I did know the Director of Public Health, but there were other key people that I hadn't met that I hadn't actually met, I don't think, the Medical Director from the local trust. So there was a number of people that I hadn't met. I felt pretty comfortable in that environment. I'd just finished a leadership program with the Health Foundation Generation Q programmer, and we'd done a lot of thinking, practicing of dialogue and generative dialogue. And so the conversations that we were having that I remembered from the early days in the ALT were were very much that generative dialogue. So we were talking and learning together as we were talking. That did feel very different. It did feel very different from the majority of, of other meetings that I was involved in outside of the programme that I'd just done. 
I remember that silence and again how challenging some people found holding that silence and that need to fill it. And actually, I noticed that over the weeks and months that we met, we, we got much better at that. We got much more skillful. We became much more comfortable without all the trappings and, and artifacts as the, as the, of a traditional meeting. We got much more comfortable asking questions that didn't have a straightforward answer. We got much more comfortable with silence and, and I think started to acknowledge that people were thinking during that time. It wasn't a signal that people were struggling. We allowed that space to be held open. And uh, we built some really meaningful relationships, I think. It was a space that we all came to really value. It was a, a big commitment, but people prioritized it. And for me, that was a real indication that it was being valued across the system. It was all about, in those early days, it was all about building relationships, getting to know what was important to us all, what united us, what was our shared purpose. It was about developing a, a language, really, so that when I said one thing and somebody else said the same thing, that we, we actually found out that there are times when we're talking about completely different things. We quickly moved away from having conversations that started with, well, what you just need to do is, which is a common part of a narrative in public sector systems. And actually, to me, signals the fact that we are taking complex problems and we're simplifying them because that's what is easier for us to do. So we got much better, I think, at holding the space, living with the complexity, not having to come up with a an answer to every problem, starting to get better at noticing how each other was presenting and showing up and being, and really building relationships that have allowed us to, I guess, practice the principles of alliancing. You know, the one that stands out is, is the high trust, low bureaucracy, and how actually you need to really work on that trust for that to become possible. And it doesn't happen by accident. It requires investment. It requires time. David also reflects now on the impact of the Alliance leadership team and building trust more generally and how important that is when faced with crises such as COVID-19. I think what the real strength of the ALT during the pandemic was that it allowed us to respond in a really joined up, quick, whole system way. And I think we, we were able to initiate and to do stuff very, very quickly. That At the time, I was hearing from other systems that were struggling to get there, whereas it just happened in South Tyneside. And I, I, my reflection is that was all, again, built on this very solid foundation of real trust, genuine trust, that allowed us to say, you know what, just get on and do that because I know your intentions are true. And I, I, I don't need a contract for that to work because we've got a, a compact. We've got a, a mutually agreed set of expectations about how we behave with each other that I know I can trust you on. The Alliance leadership team is still one of the focal points of the system in South Tyneside, even though it's changed its name and function slightly. It has been instrumental in leading the culture change that we as chief executives were espousing and supporting. 
the messages I'd leave you with today are these. Structural change looks smart and like you're really doing something. But deep conversations about how people begin to change their learnt behaviours is the really important part about creating a culture for change. This takes time and energy and commitment. Setting aside time and space to understand what you mean by being part of a system and in it together is critical. Only when you've described what behaviours you are trying to exhibit can you then notice when you see them and when you don't. Then you'll be able to build these new behaviours into your mental muscle memory. So if you're serious about building an integrated health and care system, I would encourage you to create a culture for change as your first step and consider what you've heard from our experts today. As we continue our journey of exploration of what works for health systems at a practical level, in our next episode, we will be looking at recovering from disasters. What can we learn from recovery from recurrent earthquakes and other catastrophic events that might inform our handling the effects of the COVID pandemic that we're currently living with. We'll once again be hearing from experts who've got lived experiences from both sides of the world. If you want to chat more about integrated health and care systems, you can find me on Twitter at DavidHambleton1 or visit dhleadershipalliance.co.uk. Thank you once again for listening and thanks to our sponsors, Health Pathways. Join us next time as we continue our exploration of how to build an integrated health and care system.